Welcome to episode 119 of The Real Photo Show. My guest today is Deborah Jack. But before we get to that, I just want to say the feedback and the comments and all the love for Photo Work with Sasha Wolf that I'm producing has been fantastic and I really appreciate it. And along with this episode, episode three of Photo Work with guest Eleanor Carucci is also out. So I hope you'll take a listen. And of course, with a new show, the... The most helpful you could be would be to give a nice rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. So thanks again. So Deborah Jack is a multimedia artist. Her current work deals with transcultural existence, memory, the effects of colonialism, and mythology through rememory. Deborah was born in the Netherlands and grew up in the Netherlands St. Martin. She went to grad school at SUNY Buffalo in New York and currently resides in Jersey City, New Jersey where she coordinates the photography program at New Jersey City University. We talk about how growing up on a small island with colonial heritage and landscapes altered by the patterns of water and severe weather influence her work, and we talk a little bit about teaching in the time of corona and the limits of how much we can actually prepare for it, which if you are an instructor, a professor, a teacher, you are going through that as well. We do talk quite a bit about Deborah's work in detail, so it might be helpful to visit her website, DebraJack.com, and that's Deborah with an H and J-A-C-K, Jack, just to, to see the work either before the episode, during the episode, maybe right after the episode. Uh, I think that might be helpful. And surprisingly, Deborah actually has a few show announcements. One of them is happening right now at the Tent Rotterdam in the Netherlands. It's called The Visual Life of Social Affliction, a Small Acts Project. And we talk about the work that's in that show. And that runs through September 27th. So if you happen to be in or around the Netherlands, uh, go check that out. The other one is coming up this fall, and that's at Pen and Brush. And that should be a group show, although there is also a retrospective of Deborah's work in the making. So it's going to be one of those, and it's coming up this fall. And of course, Pen and Brush is in New York City, so you can check that out. All right, everyone, I hope you are okay. Thank you for listening, and we will talk soon. Hi, I'm Deborah Jack. I'm a photographer and installation artist. I'm from St. Martin, which is an island in the Caribbean. Um, it's half French, half Dutch, but I live in Jersey City. I've been living here for the last 15 years now, so yeah, that's me. <laughs> Hi, Deborah. Hi. It's nice to uh, see you. Right. I know. <laughs> we'll see how long we'll that see lasts. We'll see how long it lasts. Zoom. Right. <laughs> Either way, we <laughs> well, at least we can keep talking. Yes. So you're you're in uh, my old hometown of Jersey City. Oh yeah, I know. We were t- discussing that a while back. Yeah, it's Jersey City. I love it here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, my wife and I, have a great fondness for Jersey City. That's where we bought our first home, and also where we would have stayed had we not uh, been unable to find a bigger house. <laughs> Well, real estate here has gotten just a bit crazy, indeed, <laughs> in the last in yeah, the years absolutely. in the years that I've been here. So yeah, it's it's sky it's skyrocketed, and it's also pretty hard to find a place. Yeah, at, at a certain point, it became um, difficult to distinguish 
the end of the Jersey City skyline and the beginning of the Manhattan skyline. <laughs> when you I think look it's down probably gotten worse river. too, right? It's probably gotten a little bit yeah, worse. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they've done a good job though at splitting it. So they've kept one half um still walkable and kind of like old uh Jersey City while the other side has yeah. the high rises and I, I really appreciate um whatever zoning they put in, in effect. Otherwise I think it's it's a bit much. <laughs> Uh, you're in you're in Jersey City because you teach at New Jersey. Is it still called New Jersey City University? Yes, that's the that's the new name. Yeah, New Jersey City University. <laughs> I think when I when I first moved here, they had just changed the name not that long ago. So people would be like, "Where do you teach? Jersey State?" And I'm like, "What? <laughs> no, there's no school called Jersey State." <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so we're New Jersey City University. I we had a little conversation about this ahead of time. It's not a traditional sort of uh, chair director setup anymore, but you you are basically in charge of the photography program. We don't necessarily have like area heads anymore, but yeah, I, I'm the only full time uh, faculty in the photo department, so I help with the scheduling and um, adjuncts and you know all the all the stuff that basically it takes to help run the that area. Yeah, that's basically what I do. I'm the I'm my title is coordinator. <laughs> And I remember a while back, they started an MFA program, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. With a, a new building and everything, yes, right? Yes, the, yes. Is that when you were hired? Um, yeah, I was hired after the building it was done. Yeah. So I, was, I came on then. I, I think when I got there, the building was probably just a year old. Yeah, it's a beautiful building. Mm. We have a great, great facilities. I always say it's sort of like a hidden gem um, in the area. We have a full dark room with like, you know, a gang dark room that's got 18 enlargers. We have another one that's got, um, for advanced students, it's got six enlargers. We teach uh, four by five. We still, we still do dark room photography. We have a color processor. So we actually teach color photography as well um, and making Wow. Your own C prints. I know. That's like, um, and the machine's only about three years old. The old one went kaput on us and um, the company donated one to us. They're probably like, well, you're probably one of the last. <laughs> I'm still teaching uh, color photography. That's wild. Yeah. And that dark room yeah. has, we have 10 enlargers in that one. But we have the, you know, lighting studio that's pretty gorgeous. We have, uh, la- you know, computer labs. So it's it's really great. And then, the rest of the art building, we have like a, a 400 square foot ceramics space, a sculpture studio, jewelry making um, and metal smithing area. So we're pretty, it's, you know, when people come and take the tour, they're usually, you know, fascinated by the fact that we have all that right there. So yeah, I, I, except for the uh, the color printer, that's that's not that different from from where I am, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. I, I, I mean, Mercer has much smaller facilities. Right. Also, not a brand new building, but. <laughs> well, I remember yeah, a lot but, of places. Like I used to teach at UB before I, I'd done my MFA at um, University of Buffalo, and I think my last year they ripped out this the color studio. You know, the color printer, uh, and we were all like, you know, we had like a little ceremony for it because you know color was it was <laughs> gonna go the way you know digital was taking over, and they converted it to a digital lab. So. It was really exciting when right. I came to NJCU and saw that they had a color processor. I was like, yay. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you said, um, you just mentioned the, the next thing I was going to ask you about, 
you you got your MFA at Buffalo, right? right? University, mm-hmm. uh, University SUNY Buffalo. At, yeah, SUNY Buffalo. Yep. Was that in visual arts? Was that did it have a concentration in photography? The way the um, program is set up, that you do uh, at the time, um, you did your um, MFA in, in fine art, but you could specialize if you wanted. But the idea that it was sort of a real conceptual program, but there was like a, a photo area, printmaking, painting, faculty, but everybody sort of worked together, and, and which was great for me because. My work, even then, was kind of interdisciplinary. I would actually did a, a year at Visual Studies Workshop in Rochester and ended up leaving in part because I needed space to be able to paint. Mm. And University of Buffalo had painting studios and a dark room. So, so yeah, so that, that was the, the pull for that program for me that they had that sort of interdisciplinary basis for the for approach to art making. It's in your bio. It's in your work, of course. You do video and sound and painting and photography. Right, and right. You grew up in uh, St. Saint Martin uh, on the, the Netherlands, St. Martin, I should say, right? right. How, do you, how do you say it? Well, you say St. Martin. Um, I, I mean, it's only 37 square miles, but it's the Dutch. Du- so, you know, the, the French side is spit, spelled with, you know, M-A-R-T-I-N, where the Dutch side is like M. San Martin. San Martin, because it's French. And then they do, uh, the Dutch side is S-T, then M-A-A-R-T-E-N would be the, the spelling for that. But yeah, I, I grew up on the Dutch side of St. Martin. Uh, when you were in high school, were you doing art? Was, was art an interest for you? Um, in high school, it was, it was really sort of uh, interesting. I think in high school, I did more theater because my mom um, was in a theater company. And so I grew up going to those rehearsals and ended up starting my own theater group uh, oh, wow. of, of teens. And we actually like traveled to a couple different festivals and did plays by like Moliere and, and Beckett. <laughs> we had this interesting drama teacher who did, you know, while he did Caribbean um, theater, he also was interested in the Stanislavski method and would teach us that type of stuff. That's great. And I, yeah, it wasn't at the time we were like, wow, he's taking this really seriously. Um, <laughs> it, you know, we started the group and then ended up like hiring him. We heard he had, you know, he had just recently moved to the island and we were like, okay, let's see if he wants to be our director. Was he from the States? No, he was from an, um, a country called Guyana, but he had lived in, um, in England and he'd also lived in the U.S. and had worked in theater and studied drama there. So, you know, he took it very, very seriously, which was great because the, the, my mom's group also took it seriously. So, you know, it, 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 it was great for us. It taught us the discipline, the sort of the rigor that goes into um, – acting you know he didn't really you know even though it was kind of a hobby he took it seriously so we took it seriously and I think it it sort of formed the foundation for me especially being exposed to theater so young with with my mom her group also did really sort of like classical like Caribbean playwrights people like Derek Walcott uh, Trevor Roan, these sort of like Caribbean playwrights who like now we all know, you know, we've heard of Derek Walcott winning the Nobel Prize and everything. But when they did his play, he was just, you know, a, a writer from mm. St. Lucia. Um, and I you know, got to meet him when I was a kid because he came to see his play wow. being, plays being put on. So so it was, it, you know, the great thing about being a teenager in St. Martin is that you because it's a small country, you sort of got to do everything. And I was a real sort of like nerd. I love news. Um, my my interest in photography came through wanting to be a a war photographer, believe it or not. And mm. um, 
because that was, you know, my dad would get Life magazine, Time magazine, and I would look at those pictures. And there was a magazine that he got for me called World, which was National Geographic had this sort of youth magazine. And this is back in oh, yeah, I remember the that. 70s and the 80s, right? And yeah, so, yeah. so even though I grew up on this island, I was really aware of the like sort of a wider world. So and and it all seemed even though it was far away at the same time people let you try stuff. So I always joke and that joke but I I worked my last year in high school I worked at a television production company that did the news for the island. So I learned to edit, I learned to do camera work, you know, with the porta pack and the 3 quarter inch tapes and you know learned um Wow. Uh, and so and, and it was sort of like, you know, I, I sort of walked in and was like, I'm interested in doing this. Can I work here? And they sort of, you know, sort of did a three month trial to see if I was serious. Um, and I was. And and so, you know, it, it's I don't know if I would have been able to access all of that the, the um, if I had lived here. So. It was, you know, those years were really good for me. Well, nothing nothing certifies your nerd credentials like being an AV person. Right, (laughs) right. (laughs) At 18, right? Like at 17 years old, you're like, you know, but I I loved it. I was, you know, it was all about um, about it. So was theater and acting your your mother's profession? No, she was a nurse. Uh, She was a nurse for 40 years. She retired uh, 10 years ago now, but she was, my mom's a nurse. So it was, it was sort of what you would call almost like community theater would be the uh, equivalent here. Equivalent, yeah, here, um, exactly. And and what about your father? My dad was um, an electrician by trade, but he worked um, as a civil servant, and then also was like an entrepreneur. He sold. Um, we had a, a a sort of a lookout spot um, that he had a, a. I don't know what you call it. Almost like he sold drinks, sort of like fruit punch and sodas to tourists because it was a spot on the island that you could sort of see and almost the entire you know, one half oh, of like the an island. overlook. Right. And he had a, a like a little bar and a little snack bar there. So that's so interesting you bring that up because I was going to ask you about your your relationship to tourists, right? Because St. <laughs> Martin, it being so small, it's it's right. it's not like you you can't interact or right. It's 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 not so separate, right? The sort of world of tourists world. Oh no, of yeah. People, our main yeah. our main um industry for better or for worse is is tourism. You know, since since the seventies, at least the early seventies, we've had major resorts and on the island. So yeah, and then also my like after school, if I had to, you know, needed a babysitter or someone had to watch me, or or at one point that was just my job <laughs> to go there and, and help and help out um, at the place. So you interacted with tourists a, a, a lot. <laughs> is, is it kind of a love hate? kind of thing well it was it was um no i mean you know they're just people i i think i learned not to be too impressed with people because of tourists (laughs) they all seem to um there's a thing that i sort of it seemed that people just sort of left their usual intellect behind i mean so (laughs) here the story would be like when i was about nine i was like walking home from school and you know, St. Martin at the time isn't wasn't as built up as it was, but um, there was a an area that you'd walk by, and it was somebody's yard, and people would have like they would keep a goat or two, or or keep a couple goats in this area. And as I was walking by, you know, this car pulls off the road, and these American tourists had jumped out the car, and they were like, "Look, look, the reindeer!" 
And I remember just saying, <laughs> and I remember looking at them going like, um, these are goats, reindeer live in the north. Like, you know, I was, I, I was, I was a, a, a kid who was a little too smart, but I was, I was, you know, and they were like, oh, oh I- look. And I was like, those are goats. And they were looking at me like, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> and then when I was about 11, I was sitting watching my dad's place while he, re- he went to get like ice or something. And I was reading Jane Eyre and... These pe- like a car pulls up and it pulled past me and then it was four tourists were in it and one woman comes out and I I have the book up because I I didn't want to engage with anybody I was you know most photographers <laughs> are loners right um, and right. she um, comes up and she's like excuse me do you speak English and I <laughs> I remember I, I always remember because I looked at the book. And I just turned it back around and kept reading. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I'm reading an English book, lady. Like, you know. Um, but yeah, she was just so curious about who went to the schools. And I was like, we do. You know. Um, so uh-huh. I just, I guess those those moments made me sort of, uh, you know, not overly impressed with um, tourist, <laughs> tourist right. behavior when I was a kid. Um, but yeah, it, it, it did teach you how to interact with people, though. And and St. Martin, because of how it is, I don't know, you know, we have an international airport. And um, well, I was because it's French, it's French and Dutch, you just we have right. about 72 different nationalities that live on the island. So it's very cosmopolitan, even though it's wow, really yeah. tiny. Yeah. There's, there's about six or seven languages. The airport is a, is a bit infamous uh, as a, a oh. tourist attraction. <laughs> yes, yes, the, the airplane landing. Yes. What, what they don't show you, while the tourists line up at the fence to be blown away um, by the jet engines, the locals <laughs> are at the bar <laughs> looking at the crazy en- tourists. Enjoying the show. Right? Yes. <laughs> That part never it's makes like, yeah. YouTube, <laughs> but 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 I but I but I've sat at that bar and we go like there they go the tourists <laughs> blowing across the street. So I don't know. I, like, but the other thing I think that's that that is powerful about that airport is isn't isn't the that novelty of being blown away. It's it's the landscape of it. The the enormous planes that that get so low to the beach as right. they come in. Right. I mean that. That that has to be like in your in your mind. It's got to be like in your DNA. Like what that that kind of landscape, right? The the big ocean, the the island, the the plains. Right. No, I I agree. I mean, whenever I'm on the plane, I I usually try to get a window seat because like that approach is always breathtaking. It never gets old, you know. Like, um, mm-hmm. and I've flown a bunch of times, but it's it's the thing I look forward to the most is sort of seeing the hills and the sort of, you know, you fly over the water and then the beach and then the runway. It's, it's, it's beautiful from the plane as well. So yeah. Right. Um, and there is that sort of like expanse, you know, cause it sort of looks out into the, the ocean. You, you're coming in from the sea towards the hills, you know? So um, yeah, it's pretty stunning. Yes. And, you know, I definitely want to, you know, get to your work, which does involve the sea quite a bit, uh, mm-hmm. but just to, just to follow through, a little bit on your history. Did you do your college level work on St. Martin? No, I did. Um, I went to Marist College um, in Poughkeepsie. Oh, 
Yeah, Maris. Um, I've been a, I've been in New York State. <laughs> I've been all parts of New York State. I've yeah. been west Western New York, um, upstate New York, and and downtown. But yeah, I went to Mar I went to Marist, and um, Marist is right around the corner from the CIA, right? The Culinary right, Institute right. of America. Yeah, right. And they actually cook for the Marist students. They used to at every Thanksgiving. That was the only time people wanted to eat at the cafeteria because <laughs> CIA was cooking. <laughs> But yes, and then Vassar is also nearby. Yes. Yeah, but they, they that's where I was introduced to sort of darkroom photography, though. Like, I'd, I had an interest in, but I'd never been able to develop my own film, but I learned it there um, under a professor named James Luciano. And he, uh, like, as an artist, he worked in platinum, palladium prints at the time. Um, and so he, even though it wasn't my major... Um, he noticed very early on that I was I was hooked and that I was always in the dark room. I took you know I took photo one and photo two, but then I also he made me a lab assistant so I could get twenty four hour oh, access wow. and weekend. He saw and it. Weekend. He saw it. Yeah. In you. <laughs> and and let me tell you, I I surely used those Saturday and Sunday hours and um, was able to to come in on my own no matter you know what hour and and work. So that that was an amazing and that's what got me hooked, you know, in, in a way. That's that, um, great. What was your major? My major was uh, communications, radio, TV, film. Oh, so you were still on the maybe uh, uh, journalism path or photojournalism Yeah, path. I was. I was interested in, in, in journalism. And that, that was, you know, my country gives you, you can get scholarships. And in the beginning, I didn't get one, but that was because I wanted to do film. And so for me to get the closest I could get to film um, was communications and so that's what I did. And then I just took my art classes as uh, electives. I took, a, I ended up doing, um, it's it weird because I, I sort of finished all my required work in three years. And so my last year, I just jumped into all art classes. I could, you know, I was essentially done. And so I took the opportunity to, to do that and, and learn Russian. That was the only, and that was it. <laughs> wow. So, so I was I was three credits away from a, a minor in Russian, and um, I was just like, I'm not doing that. And then I was three credits away from <laughs> being a paralegal, a New York State paralegal, because I liked law, and I I just didn't. I just wanted the information. <laughs> Interesting. So very varied interest. Did you have a connection to New York? What brought you to New York? Um, my family. My family had immigrated to um, on both my dad and my mom's side um, on St. Uncle's since the 60s. So. I'd been coming on vacation since I was to New York area, the Bronx and and then Brooklyn and then Yonkers since I was six. So oh, okay. that, that was my and my aunt was the one who sort of fed my aunt Aurelia, who I, who I still visit for Thanksgiving. She was uh, my mom's oldest sister, is my mom's oldest sister. And she took me to museums, exposed me to sort of all these sort of major cultural um, places in New York City whenever I come and visit her and she sort of fed my love of art and reading and and that type of thing so I always say I owe her oh, yeah <laughs> do you also identify at all as Dutch I mean how much is Dutch culture a part of the education system the the cultural identity of, of the island so it's different when I went so I was born in the Netherlands I was born in Rotterdam because oh. um, at that time my parents' generation all went to the Netherlands or to Curaçao and Aruba for um, secondary education. And then 
my mom to do her nursing training went to the Netherlands. And so I ended up being born there, but then we moved when I was really young back to St. Martin. St. Martin, at the time when I went to school, you actually learned Dutch, you know, throughout elementary school, through high school. And I, I, I always, to explain it to people, I say, well, we had an English book that taught us English grammar, but it was a Dutch book, right? A, a Dutch oh, book. Right, so right. Just to, to understand this, but the spoken, you know, the mother tongue, as we like to say, the, the, on the streets was English. You know, so you oh. grow up speaking English for the most part. And on the French side, it's it's very different. It's all French. But in St. Martin, people speak English first. And then um, when you go to school, your entire educational system is in Dutch. So your history lessons are in Dutch books. So you're sort of forced. That, that to a certain degree, became a problem. And l- linguists sort of argued, and probably correctly, that you know, it was creating um, a learning gap for some people. And so there's also, they've changed the system since then where they've had an English speaking high school where you learn Dutch. And now it's a mixture of, of both where you, you start out in English, your lessons are in English, but you learn Dutch as a second language in, in a mandatory oh, okay. sort of Dutch. Yeah. Right. So, so what's your passports? <laughs> How My many pa- passports do you have? <laughs> no, you have one, a European oh, okay. Union. It's a European Union passport. Uh, do you have a, an American passport? No, the Dutch don't let you have both. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, the du- oh. the British, do, like almost all the other countries, but the Dutch, you have to choose. And they're sneaky. They tell you, oh, yeah, come in if, if you have, you know, bring both your passports. But then when you go in, <laughs> they, they make you oh. choose one. Wow. Yeah, you have to keep it a secret <laughs> or something, they say, but most people say no. I guess. They, they, they find out for some, in some way, they do. But yeah, you can only have one. But So you don't have dual citizenship? No, no. I'm a ah. Dutch. I'm still a Dutch citizen. That's wild. <laughs> oh. Yeah, right? <laughs> oh, well, so, well, I, well uh, I'm, a, I'm a permanent, I have a permanent residence here. I have right, a right, right. Card. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So at some point, you it, it would be up to you to decide. Uh, I, now would not be a good time. Now would not be a good time <laughs> at all. No. <laughs> I would ho- if I had a, uh, had to choose right now. Yeah. <laughs> right, right now, I think. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm. I'm waiting. <laughs> I, I don't normally sort of take everybody through you know your history in that kind of linear fashion, but but I, I think it is appropriate uh, for your work um, to sort of get all that background and. Uh, most recently, you just had a show uh, with your drawn by waterwork. Um, is it is it pronounced Velosa or is it V L O S A? Well, so it's it's um it's it stands for the the visual life of social affliction. Um, so right, it, that's the and name that of a, the show. So um, right at Tent Rotterdam. Right. At Tent Rotterdam, right? So people shorten it to Velosa because it's like visual life of social. yes. <laughs> I'm, thank, thank you for saying it, by the way. That, it would have been really ne- neglectful of me not to actually say what it no, stood for. It's okay. It took me a minute to, it was like, visual life of social fiction, yes. Right. But yeah, so that's up at Tent Rotterdam, yeah, right now. Yeah, it's a, it's a, so it's interesting work. It's Is it all projection, at least at, at Tent? Um, that piece, yes, is, is it's a single channel projection in, this, in the show um, with sound. Right, so it's... Um, on your website, it's broken up into three acts. Act one is weight, weight, spelled uh, weight as in measurement, E-I-G-H-T, and then weight as in waiting on the water. And then act two is a saltwater mm-hmm. requiem. Mm-hmm. And then act three right. is sinking. 
And of course, it all involves the ocean. Yeah, so it's, it's sort of like this, um, yeah, mini series. When I the, the one that's at Tent Rotterdam right now is is Act One. When I made the piece, when I made the first one, I said, okay, I'm going to do this. And I tend to work in threes when I do things in my head. Somehow, I'm always sort of dividing mm. it up in threes. So, so the the full name would be Drawn by Water: Sea Drawings in Three Acts, and then Act One: Wait on the Water. And so the piece had to do with me thinking about the shoreline. I had done a lot of work in the past. On some level, I keep coming back to the sea um, and the water. And so in this particular project, I was thinking about the coastline. Again, you know, I use the shore a lot, but as this sort of space Mm -hmm. um, and thinking about how the lines that the waves made, like as they crashed on shore, that sort of sea foam that sort of left behind, that that was a, a form of a natural form of drawing that nature sort of made. And I'm always thinking about the sea and sort of the resonance of the sea in that moment when it intersects with the coastline. For me, the coastline is this sort of liminal space. So it's a space where change happens. It's a a space that has a, a, a duality in terms of its meaning. So on a coastline, on the shoreline, it's a point of arrival and departure at the same time, but it has to do with the relation of the body to the space, right? So it's this line. And depending on where you're going or where you're coming from, you navigate that space. And so for me, the coastline, you know, that thin space is a space for me to work with. There's a Caribbean uh, poet and thinker, Kamau Brathwaite, who talks about tidaletics. And he thinks about that too, right? The resonance of the water as it hits the coastline and what and what that does and that interaction. So you know, I was thinking of all those types of things, especially like, and that's why they were called sea drawings that I didn't have any sort of hand in, in that sort of line and that temporary line that it was this temporal drawing as well. Whereas we're sort of always sort of thinking about, you know, making things permanent. A lot of my work, you know, is thinking about nature and how nature constructs memorials uh, for historical trauma, you know, and so, and how these memorials are have a time limit in a way because I'm thinking about seasons as memorials. And so in this case to the shoreline and the water and the sort of marks that we're making was for me nature's form of abstraction as well as then still this this loaded space, right? When I think about the sea, I'm also thinking about the sea in terms of, you know, the idea of the Black Atlantic. So the Black Atlantic is Paul Gilroy um's theory about the middle passage. It's what he calls the middle passage of slavery, the the, the Atlantic Ocean between Africa and, and the Americas. And so I'm, you know, I'm always sort of thinking about, about that space as well and what it means um, and how the water is sort of heavy with, with this sort of, with the weight in a way of, of the bodies and the weight of history. And so that's why the title weight, weight on the water and the play with the two words also sort of comes into that. But the the thing about this particular piece that's at Tent um, Rotterdam, the first act, is that the majority of the water, the, the larger image that you see is actually the coast of the Netherlands. It's a beach called Scheveningen. And and so in, in that, by you know, it's the first time I sort of included any coastline that wasn't St. Martin in my work. Oh. And and I did it because I was thinking about this whole idea of the vulnerability of the, the you know, in terms of the coastlines of both countries. And so St. Martin, 
and the Caribbean region has seen this like rise in hurricanes over the last few years. And so, which leaves us incredibly vulnerable because of climate change. As the earth gets hotter, hurricanes increase, but also increase in intensity. And I remember looking at Hurricane Maria and Irma and Jose, which all sort of like, you know, Irma hit St. Martin directly. Maria and Jose glanced by us, but still did some, had some Mm. impact. But the thing about like even Maria and Irma is how explosive they were in the sense of like they went from category ones to four in no time at all. And I've been watching hurricanes because I've been using them in my work and, and just living on an island for most of my life. And I'd never seen hurricanes behave that way, like just jumping in intensity in a few hours. And, and so that was new. And so thinking about that sort of coastal vulnerability, Holland as our sort of colonial power Whenever we think about the Netherlands, we're also always thinking about that sort of colonial and political dynamic. But then I wanted to look at also the idea that we share vulnerable coastlines, that the Netherlands is 25% below the sea level, is extremely vulnerable to flooding, controls the water through a system of, of dikes and, and, and dams to keep the water at bay. And so they are extremely vulnerable to sea level rise. And so I was thinking here, we have both coastlines, you know, the colonizer and the colonized both have a vulnerable coastline, but yet we still think about, you know, within the power exchange that they seem to project a lot of power. And so I was also questioning that. So the blocks of video that show up that are more contained then is the water from St. Martin. And that water has sort of like a different speed and energy when you sort of look at it. One flows, oh, one flows okay. a little bit slower and one slow, flows a little bit faster. So, so I'm looking at stills. Yes. Okay. And the, the red and the blue rectangles? Yeah. So the, the rectangles, so the first one, weight on the water, I was still, I was really thinking in, in terms of painting, video in relation to painting and abstraction and the fact that, you know, I wasn't making the lines, but the shore was and. Then also thinking about the history of art. And so within Dutch art history, Mondrian looms really large. Mm -hmm. And that whole idea of of the rectangle. And also for me, it then also became symbolic of this idea of control and structure, having this sort of geometric shape that was imposing itself on the landscape, on on an organic form, and how that sort of created a sort of visual interruption as well and attention mm-hmm. where those lines met. And so, and also too, it was part of, you know, part of St. Martin's interest to the Dutch was that it had a large salt pond and the way that the pond would be divided by owners. And I say that um, between parentheses, uh-huh. that, that <laughs> they would make grids in the pond. The pond was gridded with these sort of little banks of dirt and, and, and sticks. And so when you growing up looking at the pond, it was always sort of this grid was always uh, on it or in it. And again, this sort of unnatural, so this desire to sort of control these natural spaces sort of plays a role too. So that that's where those rectangles um, come in. And the red at the time also too was thinking about red as a color of emergencies and, and um, danger. And at the time when I made that piece, I was still also thinking about this idea of vulnerability of us depending on the Netherlands for aid during, you know, mm-hmm. after a hurricane and then, and the politics of aid, right? The fact that, um, right. 
you know, all of a sudden, if you wanted to get emergency aid, you had to turn over control of your government to get it. And so it seemed like a real sort of neo-colonial project, this sort of disaster relief um, in the 21st right. century. And so, uh, and, yeah, the idea that that you uh, you need to be reliant right. on the Dutch in, in times of crisis. It's it's also to the idea is that within the, the, the Dutch um, structure, the way it is on paper, we're we're supposed to be partners, right, mm-hmm. within the Dutch kingdom. So while we're, you know, you know, it's a colony, it's also an autonomous state within a collective. And so, say, Martin has certain rights. I mean, like, and if you if you say that you have, you're this, this uh, relationship where you're sharing, then why is it when I need emergency aid, the only way I can get it is for me to relinquish like control of my borders, right? Um, right? And that and that that even the idea that emergency aid comes with conditions means it's not really emergency, right? Like you would you would triage a patient first before you like before you start to say, well, okay, like let's do like these things need to be fixed or these things could be adjusted and you know as we move forward. But you would help first, right? Um, and so that comes into the piece, and especially the second piece, which was at Pam, and in that one, the rectangle is is orange. So oh, so okay, that's not on your site, right? Um, no, I don't have that one on the site okay. yet because at the time right. it was but out. Th- is the second piece in Act Two? That's Act Two. Act two. So just to just to sort of um, uh, give people a, a visual in their heads, if we were to see all of this at at once, would it be three projections, or does it does it actually follow? You see Act one, then you see Act two, and then you see Act three. And it and and just to let people know this this was so this would be video of of water that is moving and it's coming in sometimes on the shoreline and erasing and changing what's there right. and going back out to sea. And, and it's the sea foam and the waves and the, and the little eddies that that makes. Right. right. Um, so they are in, in a way they are three separate pieces that all relate to each other. So, cause act two is actually, that's a three channel piece. Oh, okay. So act two is, is um, that was, um, it's only ever been shown at the Perez Museum in Miami um, so far. Mm. And that's a, that's a, that's a three <laughs> projection piece. Uh, in itself, In, a, right. in itself, okay. yeah. Um, and that, that one deals with um, the Dutch, that's the one that's called Saltwater Requiem. And, the, and then the yes. wind whispered, sometimes the aftermath is the storm. And it was really about that notion of the aftermath. Like what mm-hmm. happens after the storm is sometimes even more damaging than the storm. Right. And of course, a requiem is is music for the dead, right? right? right. A piece for the dead. Right. And it's act two. Do you see that as the transition piece? Because, you know, th- mm, of course, yeah. three, a very spiritual, religious kind of connotation, you know, and, and you have the death in the middle right? Yeah. Right, of the act. Right. Uh, <laughs> oh, I've never had anyone so read act- it that way, but yes. <laughs> Yeah, and then you know, I would Act Three be some kind of some kind of revelation, right? Well, yeah, because that's the one that's sinking. I remember that the embrace of the ocean of of oceans is the love I know and yearn for a familiar yeah. shore. So yeah, that one. But you know, even though the person is sinking, but that that the water is while there's the idea that you know there's the water is a grave in a way it's also mm-hmm. um that notion that the embrace of oceans is the love i know and that one came out of uh a Derek Walcott poem 
called the schooner flight and it's weird because i mean it's it's a long poem but it's a very it was this very sort of simple line where there's a moment where he talks about how much he loves his family and that he loves he said i love them as poets love the poetry that kills them Mm. as drowned sailors the sea and i remember thinking as drowned sailors love the sea like wow that's loving the thing that kills you is is um is, you know, and sailors spend their lives at sea and there's always this sort of, there's this relationship, right? And so in that one, it's sort of, yeah, coming in a way full circle or, you know, understanding that, yes, this ocean has the sort of weight of the bodies from the, you know, the first piece, but then there's also right. redemption and possibly rebirth. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that leads us to the, and you can tell me if this is earlier work, the the value of water and evidence. Yeah, those are earlier pieces. Mm. Yeah. So and mm-hmm. and so that that's also a multi part piece, right? Um, the value of water. Yes, the value of water is well. You know, it's 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 always tricky when I explain it to people because it's it was a vi- it's a video installation, a, a three channel video piece. But then there's also right. there's also a photo series that uses similar images, right. and so with that piece. Like one of the things I always like to play with is this notion of time and storytelling and memory. And so, you know, the thing is, you see the images, the stills, when you look at them, the photos that are printed, they're like 20 by um, 24 by 36 and 20 by 30. You see those. And if you've encountered them and then you look at the video installation, you might think it's the same thing because the girl's carrying the flowers and she's walking towards the the coastline and there's image of her standing looking out at sea. These are are much more uh, portraits in a sense, or it revolves around a a portrait of this, what you, you describe as a young girl around an island. She's both ancestor and descendant. Her journey begins inland and she makes her way right. to shore only to return to the center. Right. And she goes and it's back. And so you see that she's making this sort of in the video, it's sort of almost one directional. She's going from the center to the coastline. And then by the time the sun sets, that the, the landscape is sort of imprinted on her skin. Whereas in mm. this the series of stills, you see her at different different types of coastlines with the flower so it's it's it gives a sense and it's multiple journeys but also Mm -hmm. but also the fact that the stills don't occur in the video right like if you look at at the photos some of them look like they would be in the video but they're not the Mm -hmm. same shot you know and so i was playing with that idea that the stories when you retell a story sometimes it changes right? Depending, you know, I'm always interested in memory, but I always think about the trigger. Like what we remember is a lot is based on what triggers the memory right? and how that there's these sort of small slippages. So even when things seem familiar and the same, they're not. And so in my mind at the time when I was doing that project, I always thought of it as having three parts, which would be the video installation, the still images, and that there would be like almost like a book, but I've never gotten around, mm. never gotten around to the book. Okay. Book. <laughs> never got around still to, to come. <laughs> but yeah, so um, just because I wanted these sort of three forms of telling, but um, as of right. now, both seem so sort of complete that I just sort of left it for now. <laughs> and, and the significance of the flowers? So those flowers are called, um, they're, uh, the tree on our island is called a flamboyant tree. I think it's also mm. called a poinciana at some other places and jacaranda in some other 
places. It occurs in along um, the equator and um, in a lot of tropical spaces. And so, but for us, this flower in St. Martin, so the flamboyant tree is this tree. It's really large. The roots are super invasive and they can break up the foundation of a house that's made of concrete. So it's a very powerful mm. and big tree, but it's beautiful. And it blooms in July for the most part is when it peaks. Um, and then usually by the second week of August, sometimes the third, you have like a really powerful like thunderstorm or some rain and the blooms are all gone. Mm. For the history of St. Martin, it's it's our national tree, but it's also in within our oral traditions. Like when the enslaved people of St. Martin discovered that slavery was abolished, they broke leaves off the the tree and waved them in celebration. So for me, again, it was this idea of like, here's this sort of naturally occurring thing, this flower, this plant that also then has this connection to um, a historical event. That's that's one that's not necessarily uh, a pleasant one, right? Right. And, and what that means. And so a lot of the earlier work, especially like the evidence series and then the value of water. When I was looking at the landscape, for me, I was always thinking about the landscape and the aftermath of the storm as well in the sense of how it regenerates and how memory, the way we think of artifacts as being buried in the landscape and memory is as something that's sort of just always under the surface. And that also thinking about that after disasters, growing up and having been through about 10 hurricanes in my life, mm-hmm. you always... You know, I remember always looking to the trees and watching the green sort of come back, right? Because especially with really powerful storms, those category fives and fours, they strip the leaves off the plants. You know, the trees are like, it looks like a fire happened on the hillside and you just see dirt. You know, you can see right down to the dirt. And, you know, so when the green comes in, the grass comes back first um, in the sort of smaller shrubs. It's always sort of this hopeful space as well. So, I always feel that nature reminds us that after trauma, there's regeneration. And that maybe right. is always sort of like this notion of hope, right? That, but that, and that there is a cycle. So, And these, these photos are filled with that incredibly vibrant green, red, green, red. Yes. There's such a vibration <laughs> between the two. Right. On the hills and the, I, I think that is, is, it, is that the definition of verdant hills? I've always wondered. <laughs> I would think so. I think so. I, I, yes. I, that, that location, one of the, especially the one with the verdant hills, that's an area in St. Martin called Colombier. And I always, mm. I always go, it's just so lush and beautiful and it's quiet. Oh, yeah. It's great. <laughs> it's one of my, it's my favorite place um, to, to, to be, much less photograph. <laughs> right. And this young girl is traveling with those flowers throughout these these landscapes, right? Yeah. So so the flowers then became for me. So I was interested in again that notion of seasons and seasons functioning as memorials. And so I can I I sort of for me a lot of times I like to construct these little mythologies of my own and sort of thought of this flower as another sort of memorial because it, and that 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 moment between July and August as a season, the same way that you have fall and winter, that 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 season happened during this this tree blooming. And so she was taking these flowers then as an offering in a way and sort of moving through the landscape, taking this sort of like offering mm-hmm. with her. And also this connection between the land and the sea, that she was taking it to the water is always sort of this space that you know, um, I guess maybe I return to 
before we return yeah. to um we're yeah. you know we're made up of of water uh, we are we are the ocean right. inside right yes. so you know there's that call and especially that that work too I, you know i said you know st martin is only 37 square miles so as islands go we're a small island we're tiny i tell people we're as big as the letter A on the map, right? When, 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 <laughs> when right. they spell the name of St. Martin, it's bigger than the island. <laughs> and, and so living on a space that's small, you're, you're aware of the edges. You know, you see the edge of your island very easily. The land that you live in, you, you're always aware of the water, as opposed to like if you're landlocked or even if like you have to drive to the shore or, or drive to the coast, that's a different relationship than getting up, looking out your window and, you know, if you're high up enough, you could see the water. And and there's a certain, you know, you're almost like a ship, <laughs> in, a, in a way, right? On, you're, you're on the mast, right? Right. If and you're up looking you're at up, the water. Right. right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so that's why, too, like, she she's always sort of making this sort of like mini, this pilgrimage to the edges, but it's not a long pilgrimage, you know? So in a way that, that back and forth, this sort of ritual is also, also her just being aware of the coast of the of the edge of the island of this relationship with the sea. Yeah, when you're uh, teaching photography, how much how much of the the ideas that you have translate into sort of the way you go about? Um, not not that you're 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 looking for students who do the work you do, right? We none of us want to do yeah, that. Yeah, no, right? no. Nobody, nobody wants to make clones. No, but <laughs> but how much of your experience informs how you discuss other other work, uh, your students' work. And, you know, I like to I like to relate stories about my work and my practice and, and how much of that informs how you talk to your students about your uh, their work. Well, I guess like I'm, I'm, I'm super guarded about my own practice in a way, just because I, I know how influential it is to have your instructors work in front of you. So in, yes. in a way that if they want to look it up, they can look it up. But I, I, you know, I never show my work in class. But I think... You know, NJCU's population of students is, you know, mainly uh, large immigrant, first generation um, students a lot of times. They're non-traditional students. And, you know, for them, even taking photo as a major is such a big risk, you know, even within their families, oh, know. you know. Um, yeah. And so I'm always sort of respectful of that because I know what that's like. Like, I remember... My parents not necessarily understanding me wanting to do film or photography, but thinking that journalism was okay and having to, you know, give <laughs> give right. give them that, and then um, you know, do my art. That's why communication is is always so popular right, with photo students right, because that's that's that says job. <laughs> You had to convince your parents that you can get a job after. Um, my mom, like, first, my mom was so much more easier about my MFA because she was just like, well, you have something to fall back on. So, you know, but I but I think about that and I respect that. And one of the things, though, that I, I try to tell my students is that their stories are important. That, you know, coming from a small island in the Caribbean and you come to sort of like America there's a sense that like, you know, when you think about photography, it's always a photography, the photography of some other place, that is someplace that's mm. super exotic and far removed from where they are. Like, you know, they don't have money to go to like, you know, the desert and photograph the rainforest. And I'm like, you don't need to do that. A lot of times they see, you know, they come to photography through National Geographic or through some like magazine that they've seen of some far off place. And so yeah. one of the things that I, I 
I try to stress to them is that their stories are important, that their stories are those are those places too, you know, and that they're worth telling and that it's okay to to document that, to think about like what are the stories in your family, what are the mythologies that come out of your spaces. And and that's even if you're like born and bred in Jersey, you know, like I always t- I talked to my students about this movie Blue Valentine, um, which is oh yeah such a depressing <laughs> movie. But one of the things I loved about that movie was the cinematography. And I remember looking at it and going like, "Oh my sure. god, that guy was able to make Jersey and Pennsylvania like look good." <laughs> I, <remember> just, <laughs> I just remember thinking like, "Wow, he like you know because people think like you know you got to go to Cuba to get that kind of light in your photos." And I'm like, "No, you, no, you don't. Right? No, you, you know." So, <laughs> you know, in terms of teaching, it's about teaching them to uh, value their stories and their experiences, and that those things mm-hmm. are worth photographing. And and you know, and then it it grows from there. You know, then you find out that yeah. your stories connect to larger stories. You know, but I think you you're able to photograph the stories of others, maybe if you understand yours or if you know what kind of questions you want to ask. Right. I have a thing on my wall that I, you know, I put on the syllabus is that a good a good photo isn't worth a thousand words. It's a, a thousand questions. <laughs> you know? I love that. Um, I love so, that. That That is so much more true. Right. I, I never liked the thousand words. Right. <laughs> Be, because I, I also don't like the idea that a photo tells a story. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, oh, I love that. And so we I'm stealing that you can <laughs> because, it, you know, it should because people think it's got to be this one thing. I'm like, no, what is it? What is it? You know, what are the questions that come up for you when you look at this work at any work? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, including your own. And so so that's that's how I think my practice sort of lends itself to like teaching. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I, I went back and forth on that for a long time. Mm-hmm. Show work. I, I didn't show work probably for the first 15 years that I taught. But in the last five years, I started showing uh, my work only as a as a kind of icebreaker mm-hmm. at the beginning of class, at the very beginning of class, before anyone has this even, you know, sort of thinking about what we're going to do right, or anything like right. that. Just, just to just as a way of introducing myself and and maybe I'll do a little bonding with the students, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I present things as failure and successes. Right. 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 And so that that's how I like to present it as wor- works in progress. Yeah, I think I, I mean, I've seen it. I've seen it work like, yeah, both ways. I, I think now, too, especially because students are like sort of inundated with images in a way, right? Like their whole mm-hmm. lives. So I think you know, using your own work could sort of in a way, yeah, help just to show like, oh, this is how this is what I do. Right. I, I also find I maybe I don't know if you find this now be, because of images online. I find students come in much more aware of photographers than uh, they used to as well. You know, there I, I give photographers lists sometimes I, I give students lists sometimes of photographers to to look up things like that. But they're often coming in with with photographers that are not on my list that they've just come across looking around on the internet. And yeah. you know, like, not just like social media, sort of Instagram people, but like, you know, artists working in galleries and museums and books and also social media popular, you know, all those things. Yeah, I think that's the thing, right? Because social media is so image driven. And, and so yeah, people, and people, are, I think, are more and more mindful of like, you know, tagging, right? So they'll put the name of who, who did the work and then students, you know, if they're interested in images, and they tend to dive deep. <laughs> so that's, that's cool. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, yeah, I agree. They do come in 
with photographers I hadn't heard of before that, you know, which is great because there's so many people out there, like, you know, and the Canon is so specific. So it's great when you can get other. No, every, uh, I give a mimic assignment uh, Mm. and every semester I add more photographers and artists to my list. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what about now? What, uh, you know, in this uh, pandemic time, what have you been working on? Been working on uh, figuring out what we're going to do in the fall has been the biggest thing. Oh yeah, but, um, I know. But in terms oh, of art, have you? Has Jersey City announced its plans? Um, I believe yeah. We we are doing like a mix yes, of hybrid and, and online courses. So, um, so yeah. Me personally, I'm doing fully remote with some one on ones and independent studies at the college mm. because I moved some classes to the spring, but I have some students who need them to graduate. To graduate. So I'm doing a little. Right, yeah. Right. How about you? What What's your schedule um, looking like? Well, we're I'm doing um, history of photo. Um, and I teach a performance and video new media art history course, and those two those two will be online. Um, and then my darkroom photo class we're doing hybrid, and, and we're gonna you know in the spring when we pivoted to online, you know I did a, like research, and there's some really great photo professor groups on like one on Facebook, mm-hmm. um, for instance, um, and through SBE. I discover I found um, this. Cinestill or Monostill, and it's a it's you can develop at home. It's nineteen dollars a bottle, and you can do sixteen rolls with one bottle. Oh, that's amazing! Right. So I don't know if I should give that out because maybe there won't be any left for me. But <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. I'll, you know what? I'll I'll cut that part that's, out. It's no, okay. No, no it's, it's okay. Um, and then and then let's spread spread the good information. Right. And then students can <laughs> and can scan the images in if it comes to that. But. What we're going to do is um, we'll have them develop their film at home. Our dark rooms can hold 18, but we're doing five students Mm -hmm. at a time. Um, We're going to, people have to sign up and schedule lab use. So there won't be the ability to sort of just walk in anymore. That's what I'm doing. Yes. And, and so, and then we have like sort of, because of the space, we can do like double trays um, double sets of trays. Right. And so no one has to Two crowd. sides of the sink. Right, right, right. And so our classes are pretty small for the darkroom classes. They're um, 10 students. We'll do five, five rotating. But even with that, there's going to be a lot of the, the information will be online. Like, yep. It's all good plans until the governor shuts the state down, and then or, so. <laughs> or until you, you get it, uh, until you get a few cases. And then, right, you know, right. Yeah. Then what do you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But so, I know we're all trying. We're all trying different things, which yeah. is great. I, I cut you off a little bit before. You were going to say that the, the work, uh, some of the work you've been doing during the shutdown. So, yeah. So I've been um, working on these uh, prints that I... So back in, weirdly enough, back in December, when I'd gone home to St. Martin and they they had had protests as well. They were protesting against the French government's policy that after the hurricane, people were not allowed to rebuild their houses in certain places and for so many people that was like generational land like they didn't have like necessarily a lot but the house was the only thing that they could keep passing down to their families and in the past things have happened where the government has seized that kind of land but then a hotel shows up like in four years and so people were like no not this time and there was like there was a lot of unrest where 
you know, cars were set on fire and people were protesting. It was quite a pushback. And then also, too, because there was a problem with the water supply where they found out that there were, there was a sort of a toxin, a, a pollutant in the water that was making some people sick. And so there was all this unrest. And by the time I got there, they had called um, like sort of a truce. But I noticed when I was driving around that there was these sort of like discolorations and sort of like spots like in the in the tar of the roads. And I I remember asking someone, I said, is that where cars were on fire? Like things were on fire there? And she was like, oh, yeah, that's where, you know, you could see where the cars had been set on fire during the protests. And so I got out and I started photographing them. And then we started you know, going around the next couple of days to a lot of those different sites. And so I started because they looked again, like there were these interesting abstract patterns that had been made, mm. because the tar melted under the cars. Um, right. And in some places, they had some of the debris from the car had melted into the tar. And there were these, like, for me, I was like, I like these road abstractions. And I photographed them. And I sort of was like, okay, I'm going to get to these, I'd edited a couple and then didn't think anything of it much because I just got swept up with the whole shifting to online in the spring. And then the Black Lives Matters protest started. And I was thinking, I was like, you know, and then seeing how the global sort of response as well made me go back to my images. And at the time, too, I was sort of like looking for some of the people who had been protesting, some of the activists, and at the, you know, wondering, like, how could you document a movement and not endanger the activists by revealing their identities. Yes, and that and that yes. conversation also started came up again during the whole Black Lives Matters and the ethics of photographing protesters, etc. Black bars over eyes and blurring right, faces. Right. Right. And so and and what's the responsibility of the photographer to protect um, people when those images could be used not the way maybe you planned them to be used. And so I thought to myself, oh well, you know, I had docu here I had documented this other protest by documenting the aftermath and the imprint that it had left on the street and in the landscape. And so, you know, I went I went back to those photos and so I've been working on on those images and they're gonna be in a show in the fall, some of the in a group show at Pen and Brush in the city. Um, oh Pen and Brush. Yeah. I love pen, and pen and Brush. Yeah, they're great. Yes. They're great. And yeah. um I was supposed to have a, a fifteen year survey this uh, September 10th, but, um, uh, but, but COVID, I think that should be a t-shirt, yes. but COVID. Um, That's right, but COVID, right. Um, and, uh. and so, so there's that work. And then I was working on another uh, three channel installation that was also looking at the landscape in St. Martin. It's much more lush, but then it's juxtaposing the images with archival footage from a Dutch documentary that was shot in the 1950s on St. Martin that was looking at sort of like the end of the salt industry there. And so I've just been working with that, playing with that as well. And then I've wow. some and some collages. I got I made myself busy. <laughs> yes, no, that that's definitely keeping busy and uh, that that melted that imprint, that melted tar and rubber mm -hmm. uh, is very much very much in your wheelhouse, the idea of memory right. and effect right. uh, through the lens of colonialism. And right. Yeah. No, it was, yeah. it was, I, I remember when I was shooting it in the beginning and, and people were looking at me like, what are you doing, lady? 
but like even because you know at that time when I was shooting it tensions were still high because people thought that you know we're waiting sort of like until after Christmas to start and it had you know it was New Year's around that time that I was shooting and you know at one point we were being followed and you know but then we seemed harmless because I wasn't photographing anybody's mm. house. I was photographing the street. So then they, you know, they came up and then, uh, you know, I was able to talk to some people, but it was really sort of, you know, we were driving through and people were like watching us go through the neighborhood because it's a small, that area too was a very small neighborhood. Everybody knows each other. So here's a strange person, mm-hmm. a strange car. And then here she gets out and she's pointing the camera at the street and at some of the wreckage. <laughs> Like, what is that? (laughs) So that's not like any surveillance that they might think of. So, it, you know, so that also ended up being sort of like a a conversation piece. And um, ideally, the the, the idea was actually to go back and to those places with some of those images, too, and then sort of have a conversation in an extended sort of way. But um, for now, this is with travel bans being what they are. This is where where we're at. I know. Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. Well, thanks for having me. This was great. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Real Photo Show with Michael Chauvin Dalton is a production of Real Photo Show. You can hear this show on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and subscribe to one of those platforms or wherever you listen to podcasts.